1: And we are live again, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it is, it is the Marketing Geeks. We are back and better than ever. Justin. Yo. Uh, I've been thinking a little bit about uh, certain things. And one of those is the idea of, of language and uh, how, um, how Burroughs said that language is a virus from outer space. And it's constantly shifting and and changing. But I mean, language doesn't have any meaning anymore. But uh, you know what what does is is visual graphics. Mm. And uh, I consider myself a visual learner. How about yourself? Uh, I would say I'm an auditory learner myself. But
2: uh, keep going. What, what where are you going with this?
1: Uh, in, take infographics for instance. Okay. I love infographics, but I I don't I don't know the science behind them. I have no idea how how to do that. So uh guess what i did what's that uh i found ourselves an expert really yeah man it's uh, for, for serious
2: <laughs> for serious all right well let's do it then let's talk to this expert about this visual stuff
1: all right man and uh without any further ado uh ladies and gentlemen i'm andrew sturgeon and i'm justin womack and we are the marketing geeks There we are, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Here we are, the marketing geeks. Hey, Justin, tell us about tonight's guest.
2: Tonight's guest, yes, we have Amy Balliette. And she is the CEO and founder of the creative content agency Killer Visual Strategies, uh, formerly called Killer Infographics. She owned her first company, a candy store and ice cream parlor at the age of 17 before heading off for college and subsequently built a successful career in SEO and marketing before launching Killer Visual Strategies in 2010. And for the years since, she's grown that company to become the industry leader in visual communication, driving visual strategy, creative content, campaigns for uh, global brands like Microsoft, Boeing, Adobe, Nikon, Starbucks, the National Endowment for the Arts and the United Nations. Wow. Uh, she's considered an expert in her field. Uh, Balliette speaks at dozens of conferences each year, including South by Southwest, Adobe Max, SMX, and more. And she regularly teaches at the School of Visual Concepts and for several colleges and universities as a guest lecturer. So please welcome to the show Amy Balliette. Amy, how are you today? <laughs>
0: You're doing okay. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the claps too. Yeah,
1: for sure. <laughs> uh, we're all about that. Um, so so uh, that's, that's quite an impressive resume. So for uh, those who don't know who you are, and uh, can you expand a little bit about what you do and how you do it and how you ended up doing exactly what you're doing?
0: Yeah, definitely. So Killer Visual Strategies, formerly known as Killer Infographics, as my uh, hoodie shows, Um, is a visual communication and creative content agency. What we do is we help our clients connect with their end audiences through visual communication specifically, which is content that graphically represents the information rather than hitting your audience with a wall of text, which today's audience is just aren't really wanting to check out you you grab the audience with high quality visuals that tell the story for you and maybe limited text is used in the type of content that we produce but it's really all about really leaning into the brain science of our own form forms of communication and how we love visuals and how we crave communicating through visuals so we really help our clients connect with that demand 91% of audiences today demand visual content as their primary secondary and tertiary form of communication from the brands that want their attention so we help brands do that
2: so where's this showing up this kind of content is this showing up on social media is it showing up um, on blogs or websites where where's this content showing up
0: honestly everywhere Um, You know, marketers today are using 12 to 14 types of visual content to accomplish singular goals. So that might mean putting out some bite-sized content on social that drives people into a conversion funnel. It might also mean other aspects of that conversion funnel. Maybe you've got somebody getting into the top of that funnel through very high-level visual content. But in the middle of that funnel, maybe you're sending them a highly visual ebook, for instance. So it's really through that whole conversion funnel process, but it also exists offline as well. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is the billboard industry was the leader of the visual communication world before marketers started really jumping into it for the needs of digital marketing. And so, I mean, we see visual communication all around us in the physical realm And when we get back to a place where we're actually going to conferences again, Mm -hmm. you're going to see, just like before, visual content used wildly within expo halls. It's one of the best ways to get your audience and to get them intrigued in your product or service if your staff at your conference booth is too busy just having the right visual brochures that are truly Mm -hmm. visual, not, not a brochure that's stock imagery and paragraphs of text but truly a nice visual piece or an infographic backdrop, those are all things that help grab that audience and convert them.
1: Cool. How how did you, how did you get into this? Like initially, cause uh, you you had your first business at uh, what? 16, 17. Uh, So, so how did you go from that to doing what you're doing now?
0: Um, Honestly, like a typical millennial, jumping around from career to career until I found something that was a mishmash of all of it. um, I mean, that's really the best way to think about it. I um, went to film school. I fell in love with visual storytelling at a very young age and always knew that I wanted to be doing something in the space of visual storytelling. But my very practical and pragmatic parents told me, minor in something realistic. So I minored in marketing and majored in film and um, moved out to Seattle after I graduated. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, graduated Cleveland State University, moved out to Seattle to kind of enter the world of film. I was really looking into documentary filmmaking, which was something that you could really get the right network for in Seattle, Washington. So it was one of the reasons I came out here. Um, but I found that I was really in love with marketing too. So I have had a lot of different roles. I've I've been a a video editor and a graphic designer, and um, I have worked in in motion picture marketing. And then I've jumped right into SEO and online marketing for a completely different world and completely different set of industries before kind of merging it all together to create what was then Killer Infographics. And even then, it was an accident. It was a reaction to people asking us to design infographics for them because we were designing them for a completely different business model. We were designing them for our own marketing needs. And people started asking for those infographics for themselves because they saw the success we were having. And so it just pivoted.
2: It's funny how that works sometimes when you, when you do those things like that. Um, so I, I, for Killer Visual Strategies now, Is film a part of that? Are you doing videos like explainer videos or graphical videos uh, as part of the company too?
0: Definitely. Um, So, you know, we launched in 2010, just doing infographics, hence our original name. And by 2012, we really saw that opening to start doing motion graphics and explainer videos. Um, In fact, the chief creative officer of my company was hired as an intern on April 1st of 2012. We still haven't told him that it's still an April Fool's joke. He wasn't really hired. (laughs) Um, he was hired as an intern and he climbed up the ladder at the company because he came to me and said, I can see you want a motion department, but you don't have the time to make it happen. So I'm going to make it happen. And he built our, our motion department. It's a big part of what we do.
2: That's the kind of person you
0: want on your staff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, so uh, you basically took like, you were, you've always been interested in the visual medium with film. And so you kind of pivoted to that. I mean, that's, that's, it's kind of funny because I, I, uh, I had a similar sort of thing myself where I, uh, you know, I was always a storyteller's wrote scripts and, Tried to make it in Hollywood until I realized everyone in there was uh, a psychopath. <laughs> but, uh, but marketing is, is fantastic. And, and you can definitely use those same skills. So uh, how did you like, pivot that to, to infographics? And when, when did that really take off for you?
0: It really started June of 2010. Um, when I designed what I consider to be the worst infographic that has ever existed in the world. And it's actually on a bunch of top 10 lists as the worst infographic of all time. (laughs) Um, I, I, I show it in my book because I want to show off how I started. Um, it's just a horrible piece. And I, uh, but I did it for a different website I had at the time I had, Um, a business partner, and we were building a bunch of websites through um, affiliate models. So we were trying to basically kind of have 20 to 30 affiliate sites that we could really drive revenue with. Mm -hmm. And in 2010, link building and, um, you know, really moving up in SERPs because of a really good high quality anchor link was still one of the most important aspects of Google's algorithm. It's still important today, but not nearly as much as it was in 2010. And infographics were a great way of getting inbound links. And in 2010, nobody had a set of standards for what quality was for an infographic. So you could honestly produce something as low quality as what I designed, slap the word infographic on it, which I did, even though it's a really bad design. And you can get a bunch of links. And I got about two or 3,000 backlinks in just a couple of weeks with the first infographic. Wow. Second, second infographic, same thing. So we just started putting out a couple of infographics a month and just churning in backlinks. Um, and then from there, around August of that same summer, my old business partner came to me and said, I thought of a really cool name last night, Killer Infographics, and the domain is available. What should we do with it? And so we decided, let's build a website that acts as a directory, that that kind of takes all the infographics online and um, provides a full, thorough review of what works and what doesn't. And um, that was the original kind of aspect of Killer Infographics, um, but after just a few weeks of pulling all of those different infographics online onto the site and reviewing them, um, and then charging people re- for, for reviews, we had people coming to us saying, well, you, you think that our infographics are awful. Clearly, you can do better. So we'll pay you to do infographics from now on. And it was then that I saw an opportunity. Um, our affiliate sites were doing so-so. I knew a big Google algorithm shift was coming up. I mean, this was the time of the Panda and Penguin, the, the biggest algorithm shifts that really kind of shook how modern marketing was at the time. Um, and so I knew that these algorithm shifts were coming down the road and that we didn't have the capacity to change all of our websites in time. Um, and so I started really pushing for this idea of hiring some designers and building a small agency. And the original idea was that it was going to help fund the other sites while we grew those sites. And eventually those sites would take over and still stay our business. But after even, you know, about six months or so, it was quite clear that Killer was the winner. The other sites weren't. So we just shifted all of our attention to Killer and the rest is kind of history. We grew from there.
1: Nice. Uh, I've got a question from uh, someone who's watching the live stream right now. Uh, Gerard Foos asks that uh, they uh, says me, we uh, Amy. We see a lot of a ton of infographics these days on socials like Pinterest and Instagram. Oh yeah. Uh, you talk about uh, the graphics at trade shows. Do you think the impact is similar on social when the graphics are smaller? And much more abundant.
0: Um, yes and no. So so it depends on the graphic itself is the real answer. And the fact is, is ninety nine percent of the visual content that's being pushed out there is so low quality that it's not going to succeed. It's not going to cut through the noise. Um, HubSpot put out a statistic that is one of my favorites. It's ninety four percent of first impressions are based on design. If you're leading with a subpar, or low quality design. The first impression somebody's going to have, which by the way, it takes one tenth of a second to form a first impression, the first impression that somebody's going to have is going to be incredibly negative about your brand. Yet, what cuts through the noise are the completely custom and original graphics that have very little text. The graphics that aren't just slapping text on top of a a stock photo. Um, The graphics that aren't taking a bunch of stock vector, stock illustration assets that don't even match and somehow putting them together in a design. So the super quality designs, those succeed. They will cut through all of that noise. And they'll cut through the noise because our brain science is actually made it's it's we're, we're hardwired to give our attention to that content. But we are also hardwired to completely ignore low quality content.
2: So to elaborate, yeah, to elaborate on this. So okay, so if I'm scrolling through my LinkedIn or Facebook feed, one of the things that's going to stop someone like me is going to be a quality logo that is not like, obviously not clip art, not from Canva, <laughs> like, done done professionally. What what are some other things that would get people's attention? Because on Facebook, you know, we're all scrolling through, we're getting our dopamine hits. What uh, what are the things that that kind of uh, break the pattern of that to kind of make somebody stop? Like, what, can you give some examples of some of the other things that you're doing that are working uh, that you're finding success with?
0: Definitely. Um, first and foremost, a big rule that I that I give and I break down in my book is avoid the stigma of stock stock imagery will not stop somebody. It will just, somebody will completely gloss over stock imagery as they're kind of scrolling through that feed. Um, What really captures people's attention on social does depend on the social channel. On Facebook, you're going to get a lot more attention if you're leading with a 30 second or less motion graphic, something that is animated, something that is clearly using entirely custom illustrations throughout. Um, on something like LinkedIn, you're actually going to get more attention by having a selfie style video because people want to hear from thought leaders on LinkedIn. and so it feels more authentic to connect with somebody through a selfie style video on LinkedIn. But that selfie style video needs to be framed really well. meaning the the kind of top and bottom of it, um, kind of like a, a letterbox on a normal sixteen by nine video, but a selfie style should feel portrait. You should still have a top and bottom where you have a very clean logo and at the bottom, a clean call to action. No clip art, no crazy typography, just really modern typography. Um, Definitely don't use things like Papyrus and Comic Sans, for instance. Um,
1: Comic Sans is going to make a comeback. I'm telling you. It's on my 2020 list of apocalypse things that are going to happen.
0: Comic Sans,
1: yes. Comic Sans. Very important.
0: That would cap off 2020. You're right. That's a, that's a perfect apocalypse 2020 edition. <laughs>
2: well, to continue to continue down this road here, uh, let's talk about custom fonts. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you, do you not value custom fonts that all that much? You just think that you need to have a clean font? So like, cause some, I've talked to a few different people about this and I've heard differing opinions. Some of them are like, swear that you have to have a custom font uh, or it's uh, or you're basically wasting your brand. Can you, uh, can you talk a little bit about custom fonts? Definitely.
0: So there's two types of custom fonts, honestly. There's custom fonts that feel a little sloppy, feel a little overdone. Um, I'll give you an example, Lobster. Lobster, I used to love that custom font. It used to be one of my absolute favorites, but then it became so overused that it's actually gone the way of Comic Sans and Papyrus. So you kind of have to pay attention to trends. Um, when it comes to getting great custom fonts, I suggest going to Lost Type. Lost Type is a phenomenal resource of the best, most popular fonts out there. Um, They are beautiful fonts, but you should only lead with one custom font if if you're delivering visual content. And what I often see is people get so excited about all the different types of fonts out there that they're trying to pair three or four custom fonts and it just feels like a jumbled mess at that point. So having one unique custom font that you use for your headline and your call to action, that's a great idea. You can also use it for any number labels and things like that. But from there, you should focus on some traditional fonts that people are used to reading online because it'll make it easier for them to digest the content. It won't feel overwhelming to them. Interesting. So
1: what what goes into, like, what are the elements of a good infographic? Like if you, if I wanted to say... Uh, explain that there was a podcast that was very awesome and some <laughs> stats around that, uh, especially a podcast around say marketing, for instance, how how would you like what, what, when you get a, a hypothetically, <laughs> hypothetically uh, and it only has seven listeners, how, how would you break down a particular story? Like when, when you get a job, what are the elements that go into making a winning infographic?
0: So there's eight rules broken down in my book, and I can kind of dive into a few of them. Um, When it comes down to an infographic itself, one of our first rules and our favorite rule is always think about context. It's a con when there's too much text very simple easy rule to remember so when we're preparing to design an infographic one of the first things we'll do is really work out the word-for-word content of that infographic that script Um, that script has to be designed and our permit developed first because that's going to inform the design but it also gives us the opportunity to really identify where the text is too much versus too little so that we can get it to a point where it's not too text heavy When it comes to the design of the infographic, a high-quality, well-designed infographic is going to incorporate a few key features. First and foremost, it's going to use a column-based layout, Um, the same way a great web design uses a column-based layout. An infographic should do the same. People often think, well, it's not a website, so I'm not restricted to to specific columns. But if you actually follow a two- to four-column structure in an infographic, you're going to find that everything feels so much more organized and it will be far, far easier for the viewer to actually take the information in. Another thing to consider is um, making sure that the entire illustration style throughout the infographic is the same style. This is one of the biggest mistakes that people make. They often will buy a bunch of stock vector assets um, or they'll be building an infographic in Canva which has a lot of stock vector assets. And they can't find the illustration they want from one vector pack, so they go find it from a different pack. But those end up being completely different illustration styles, and that just clashes. It ends up becoming something that's really hard on the eyes. I also often see um, designers mix 2D and 3D elements. you got to pick one. you got to go all out 3D, or you have to go all out 2D, but don't mix those styles. Another big big factor is a healthy use of of typography and really making sure that you're choosing fonts that carry the story forward or elicit an emotional response based on the narrative that you're trying to tell. Um, that's something that we always are looking for. And then when it comes down to the color palette, that's a big one. Um, I have a rule in my book um, that says there's no gold at the end of that rainbow. In other words, you do not need a rainbow of colors on an infographic. Um, focus on three primary colors. And then of those three primary colors, consider um, really, you know, if you need other colors, use shades of the three primary colors. And in those three, one color should be your standout color, should be your pop color that you use for important pieces. So maybe it's the color color. That's always representing a number in your infographic as well as your call to action. Um, but it should, you shouldn't be using your colors just willy-nilly. Basically, every single visual choice you make should be based on building patterns for the end viewer. So you really have to kind of lean into those patterns. Don't use a bunch of different font sizes, for instance. Stick to specific font sizes for headlines, supporting font, and labels.
2: So what emotion is Andros conveying with comic sons and what narrative is he is he saying?
1: <laughs> that I refuse to grow up. <laughs> uh so if if I were say um graphically impaired, uh <laughs> what, how I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah to, to, to put it mildly. Uh how how would you recommend someone like myself uh put together a Uh, infographic. I mean, you know, there's lots of infographic, you know, templates that you can get. There's Canva, of course. But what, 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 where would someone who doesn't have any skills, where would someone like me start? Well, is Canva enough also?
0: So I think Canva has a lot of good uses to it. But the issue that we're going to find with Canva is simply the fact that your competitor could be using the exact same template, the exact same iconography, the exact same vector assets. Another big issue we find with Canva is, people who don't have an eye for design, like Andros was just saying, people who don't have an eye for design um, can end up spending hours upon hours putting something together in Canva. And because they put all that time in, they kind of lose the ability to judge the quality of the design. (laughs) They end up thinking it's a great design, they put it out to the general public, it fails. And in its failure, they blame the infographic. They say, oh, infographics aren't meant for me instead of realizing that the issue is actually the design itself. So the true answer is if you are not a designer and you don't have an eye for design, don't try to make the content yourself. Because again, 94% of first impressions are based on design. And you only get a first impression once. You don't want to risk that. Hire a good designer. Hire somebody whose portfolio shows great infographics already. Because I'll tell you this, when we started, we tested out over 250 designers with beautiful portfolios, but only five of them worked. Only five of them could actually design an infographic. It, It turns out that you can have a fantastic portfolio. You can be an amazing designer, but it takes a very specific mindset to be able to design for visual communication, to be able to properly design an infographic. And so the fact is, is just a portfolio without infographics won't do it. You got to find somebody who's designed infographics before and who's really seasoned in it. If you want to get a really good, um, a really good graphic. And that's one of the things I cover in my book is, um, is actually the the concept that um if you're looking for a freelancer here's the hourly rate you should be paying if you're if you're going to a freelancer that's charging you less than less than that hourly rate most likely you're going to have really bad content as your end result
2: and what is that hourly rate
0: um it depends on the type of freelancer you're looking at but on average fifty dollars an hour at minimum for a good designer mm-hmm. um, 70 bucks an hour, you're going to get a really great designer. If you're working with an agency, you're going to be paying 100 to $200 an hour, depending on the agency. But um, I break down every type of visual content to expect for a marketer, and exactly how many hours that work should take for a combined team, that being a writer, a designer, a project manager, and hourly rates that you should expect to pay if you're paying a freelancer versus somebody in-house versus um, versus an agency, that way marketers can truly understand how to find the best possible um, partners for something like this. But also, I'm hopeful. I'm hoping that'll help designers as well because a lot of designers don't know how to price themselves, and they got they have a lot of downward pricing pressure because of the international market. Um, so ultimately, yeah, fiber. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately, my goal is to empower marketers because marketing is is really my primary background and, and something that I love. And I found that as a marketer, I had to hire all of these different agencies um, to just accomplish my own marketing goals and hit my metrics at my company that I was working at and get my bonus. Um, and, and that's the thing, when you're a marketer, your bonus is based on hitting specific metrics. And all of a sudden, you have to hire an external agency. And you kind of put that livelihood of yours in their hands. And that can be terrifying. And so marketers need to be empowered. They need to know how to manage projects like this, what to expect and how to set proper expectations. And that's really, um, really my goal in, in life and in all my speaking is to help empower marketers to do that properly.
2: And part of that I think is like kind of self-awareness and knowing your own limitations. So you need to know like, okay, I'm not good at graphic design. So I need, that's something I have to assign to somebody else or outsource, yeah. but I can handle the Facebook advertising component where I'm running the ads itself and tracking the data. But uh, yeah, so I, part of that is just kind of a self-awareness. Go ahead, Anders.
1: So so in short, uh, just like a chainsaw juggling, you <laughs> should leave it to the experts. I, I learned this lesson the hard way. <laughs> you uh, know uh I have another question here uh uh from uh one of our listeners uh viewing live uh how much of the physiology versus psychology goes into designing a killer infographic meaning uh yellow on black and and uh movement are easy to use for us to see versus how we look at the corners of a picture or the human face first uh those types of distinctions
0: so. Ultimately, when you're, when you're designing for any form of visual communication, whether it be an infographic or a motion graphic or what have you, um, you really do have to consider the psychology of your end audience. And there's two aspects of that psychology. There's the innate, the innate brain science that exists in all of us. And then there's kind of the personal preferences of your exact target audience. So when we think about that brain science that exists in all of us, some key things to consider are the fact that visual information can actually get to the brain 60,000 times faster than any other form of communication that exists. The reason for that is because visual processing is one of the first things our brain really learns how to do. And if you think back just to, you know, just back to caveman times, if you will, the, the very first form of expression and communication that we have on record is cave paintings on walls. And, and that's because it was instinctual for us to communicate visually. And in a world where we're inundated with information left and right, it makes sense that we're kind of rolling back to those base instincts. The, the concept um, or the phrase, the path of least resistance comes from brain science. The concept is simply... That, you know, we're forming all these wrinkles in our brains and they're connecting different synapses. And the, the less wrinkly part, the, the kind of straight connections are where we can process information fastest. And so our current paths to least resistance actually live in our visual processing abilities, Um, 30% of our cerebral cortex is made up of visual processing skills, while only 3% is made up of the ability to process the sound around us. And and if you think about the fact that we can be in a loud room and hear our name from across the room, just from something where it's subconsciously hitting us to a conscious level, that's with only 3% of our brain power consuming all of the noise around us. So with 30% of our brain power consuming all the visual content around us, it makes sense that we are able to connect visually far easier. So knowing that you really have to kind of lean into universal iconography, universal iconography connects with us super quick. Think about a recycling sign. You can see a recycling sign from across a room and you know, okay, I go and I recycle my trash over there. You can see a caution wet floor sign as you're walking through an airport, and you know, hey, if I walk there, I'm going to slip, I'm going to fall, I'm going to break my back. You know all of these things without having a paragraph of information saying to you, if you walk here, you're going to slip, you're going to fall, you're going to break your back, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So
1: yeah, someone we, someone shows a post with a with a red, white, and blue cue. I know they're batshit crazy.
0: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. And that's the thing. It's it's all about those visuals where we come to these quick conclusions when we see specific visual content. Um, so that psychology is universal. But there's also personal psychology. I mean, we can we can use politics as an example. If you're trying to connect with Trump supporters, then you're going to use visuals that are very specific to that crowd Versus if you're connecting with Biden supporters, you're going to use a very different set of visuals. So you have to consider what the end audience assumptions are and wants are, and you have to also design for those specifically.
1: Now, have you, have you dealt with that particular thing where you uh, get a client and they want you to, to design an infographic to promote something that you may, be, you may find morally dubious? uh, what do you, what do you, do you take the job and, or do you, do you, have you denied clients?
0: I have, I have denied clients. Um, it's, it's such an interesting thing because I look at, um, all of the different debates out there right now about whether a small business owner is allowed to deny service based on their own beliefs. And the fact Mm -hmm. is, is I have, I have denied service based on my own beliefs. And I think that, Small business owners should have that capability and that right. It's their business. Um, and so, I mean, I remember the, the first time I had to say no to a client. And I'm not going to say uh, who that client is, but I will say that they were a major Fortune 500 company that was participating in stuff that we did not agree with as a, as a company ourselves. And we hire and fire by the values of our company. We hire and fire our employees by values. We hire and fire our clients by values as well.
1: It's one of the things I love about being an entrepreneur is that is being able to just, you know, say to a client, you're, you're kind of a pain in the ass and I don't want to work <laughs> with you anymore. Uh, and, and that's one of the the best things ever. Uh, I have a, I have a question. I want to come um I want to talk about uh, explainer videos a
2: little bit. So we haven't really mm-hmm. we haven't really gone in that direction because, like, back in like twenty fifteen, like the the Fiverr two minute explainer videos got big and really popular, and like all the SaaS companies were doing these two minute. and There's actually I think they're still doing them. <laughs> these two minute explainer videos that are made on like Pop Two or I forget what the name of uh, the software was, but this Tune software that everybody was using the same graphics, same thing. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like quality explainer videos? What uh, what you see is necessary in
0: 2021 now,
2: like what's working? Because again, I I see so many people that are just using this generic template and like it's such a turnoff now, in my opinion, anyway.
0: I, I agree entirely. That's, that's the issue with templates. That's the issue with DIY solutions is everybody will glom onto those and then all of a sudden it feels redundant and overused and all of your investment of time and money just disappears. And so um, a good explainer video is going to be anywhere from 60 to 90 seconds in length. Although these days, 60 seconds tends to be the sweet spot. Um, In fact, if people see that it's over 90 seconds in length, you're only going to get about 47% of your audience pressing play. So you wanna keep it at least under 90 seconds. Um, other good aspects of a great explainer video include, um, having a three act structure in 60 seconds to 90 seconds. You can still do a three act structure. The first act is introducing the problem. The second act is where you spend the meat of that explainer video. That's the bulk of the time, maybe 30 to 45 seconds of it, where you're talking about how your brand or service is the solution. And then the final act is the call to action. Um, a really great explainer video makes the customer the hero of the story, not the product or service. The product or service is there to empower the customer, not there as the end-all mm-hmm. be-all hero of the story. Um, it should utilize um, very little text on screen, a professional voiceover service. Um, in fact, you could go to Voices.com, great website to get amazing voiceover artists. So, you know, you have to get a good custom voiceover for it. Um, you also have to ensure that you're doing more than what PowerPoint can do. Don't just animate things left to right and up and down and, and you know, zooming in from, from nothing to, to something larger. Don't just do that. If, if you can do it in PowerPoint, it's not worth making your entire explainer video that now i'm not saying that those animations won't happen here and there but your explainer video should really kind of have a lot of camera movement and the more camera movement you have in an explainer video the more successful it is and by camera movement when when i'm talking about something animated people might be saying what the heck does that mean but the fact is is a great animator can make it feel like a camera is panning around in a scene. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't rest too heavily on typography in an explainer video. We used to live in a world where kinetic typography was all the rage in videos. It lasted for about two years. Uh, It just doesn't really drive much attention anymore. Don't do a whiteboard video. Those were also overdone and therefore they're no yeah. longer that great.
2: With a little hand.
0: Yes. <laughs> don't use stopped photography? And if you're going to have characters, make them animate in a realistic way. Don't, don't just simply have a character standing there doing nothing or don't make it look like some paper doll has just been dropped onto the scene. They have to truly animate like a real character would. But all that takes time. A good explainer video is about two to 300 hours of work. It's not a quick and easy thing to do. And so one of the biggest mistakes out there is is people see all these kind of cheap, quick turn solutions and say, oh, I'm going to go buy that explainer video service. But the only way somebody can turn around an explainer video in under a week is by relying heavily on templates. And because of those templates, your script has to be written to match that template instead of written to best display your product or service. Mm-hmm. And so if you really want to succeed, you have to have something that can be informed by the narrative of your script. And if 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 it has to be informed by that, it has to be custom and original.
2: So while uh, I have a question, like, How long do you think you can maintain like a still shot? Um, And this can go into regular video, too, because like I I look at like, you know, what we're doing right now, we can get away with this because we're live. Mm -hmm. But like if I if we put this video on YouTube, you know, people have trouble engaging with this kind of content for long term without like camera cuts, without like stock footage inserted in there or like different like movements. And so, and so I'm kind of curious, like, what are you seeing in terms of like how long can like one shot kind of be on screen before you need to make some sort of a cut? Like, what, what, like, uh, what are you, like, kind of attention span are you seeing people have?
0: <laughs> so when it's when it's a short form video, we're talking about a couple of seconds. When it's like, let's say a, a presentation that you're doing and it's going to be maybe thirty minutes. Well, something like that, you might want to switch every. 30 seconds or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it does depend on the length of the video itself. But yeah, when it's short, I mean, we're we're kind of jumping to, if not the next scene, the next angle, as quickly as we can, because that's the other thing to note, you can have the same scene, and a lot going on in that singular scene. But just like in live action, where you're jumping from angle to angle, you can do that in a motion graphic as well. And it's just about bringing in that diversity because it really engages the audience and the eye. I mean, brands today, they're not competing with others in their industry. They're competing with Netflix. They're competing with Hulu and Prime and all of these blockbuster entertainment solutions out there. That's who you're competing with. So you have to deliver at that level these days.
1: And and short attention spans. I mean, yeah. you know, I I I kind of lament this particular thing. And as a filmmaker, uh, Amy, I'm sure you can connect with this. Uh, one of the the best opening uh, opening credit sequences in my mind in in cinema history is "Once Upon a Time in the West" uh, Sergio Leone, and it's ten minutes of three guys just waiting for a train, and it's so it's it's just it's so well done. You're you're the way that uh, it, it's shot. But, uh, the other day I'm watching a movie, I, I forget what it was with my son. And, uh, I said, Hey, watch this movie. It's a classic. I try to show him older movies and 30 seconds into it. He's like, "Dada, this is boring. I'm like, it just started. <laughs> it has, it man. started yeah, this is the credit sequence. <laughs> it's like, come on. And so, so the, the kind of the, the impatience to have things start happening right away uh you know it's like Michael Bay this is yeah you know you gotta have an explosion in the first it's Michael Bay uh, and I yeah and I, his fault all right it's his fault for this yeah and I I uh I, I just I'm I, I I I lament the fact that that those days are behind us in fact the, you know the whole idea of the movie going to the movie theater seems like it's going to be behind us yeah uh, now especially it was going to be behind us anyway, but that it
2: just became a lot faster. Uh, I, have, I have one more or maybe two more questions here. One, uh, you follow Gary Vaynerchuk at all, Amy?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
2: Okay. So I, I've seen like on LinkedIn recently and, and possibly on Facebook as well. He's been doing like this new format that's like four slides. They're kind of like motion slides and they kind of have like a story that they tell. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a new thing that is, uh, that's kind of, Starting to become a trend, but not. I would say it's not uh, that widespread yet. Uh, are you seeing a lot of people adopt that strategy, where it's like this, like the four frames and like the the story that's being told with nice graphics and everything? Yeah, almost like a comic book.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of like you know, once Instagram Stories started to retrain our brain in taking in information that way, we're starting to see people um, really experiment with different ways to execute on that, and. I do think that that's going to be um, a pretty big trend for a short period of time. I don't mm. think it's something that's going to stick around for all that long. But I do think that I'd say over the next six months to a year, lean into that because there's a lot of opportunity there.
1: One of our uh, listeners, uh, 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 Gerard Fouz, just asked uh, about the Is that how you pronounce yeah. it. I-, I hope so. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, if, if, Gerard, I'm, if, if I got that wrong, please correct me. But uh, he was wondering about the, the the whiteboard illustrations with the hands. Are those still relevant? Are, do, do you, no. no. The answer no. is no, no. No. She said Gerard, that earlier. Yeah, so yeah, no, no. Walk away <laughs> from it. Put it down. Move away slowly from the whiteboard hand drawing video.
2: Yeah. The other thing I just wanted to bring up, because I think it's interesting, and you'd probably know a little bit about this, is like the idea of Netflix thumbnails or even YouTube thumbnails. Um, because I, 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 we, we had a guy from Netflix that worked in the art department on this show and, and we, we spent some time talking, well, he was doing a lot of billboards for Netflix also, but we, we spent a little bit of time talking about the thumbnails and how not only are the thumbnails, like the, not only do they invest a ton of money in the thumbnails, but there's a custom experience. Like everybody, every, different users see different thumbnails based on like the profile that they put together on you or the, uh, so that your algorithm's different based on your history, your viewing history, things like that. Do you think that like websites will eventually integrate that kind of technology also, where you're seeing you because we, we talked a little bit about this on the show too, is like custom experiences and um, dynamic content based on you know like CRM tags or whatever we've kind of stored on somebody. Do do you see that as like the next? thing that's going to happen and like, and and the visual can play into that.
0: Yeah, I actually think it's really important. I mean, the Netflix thumbnails are a perfect example. Um, There are shows that I won't even press play on until suddenly that thumbnail changes. And I see, Oh, that actor's in this. Okay. I will watch this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, those thumbnails convert me so quickly. It's crazy. And I, there's a, a great company out of San Jose called Cloudinary. Um, Cloudinary is really focused on helping to speed up highly visually rich sites. And they have a lot of solutions already for dynamically loading imagery. And so my guess is they're going to be one of, the, one of the companies on the forefront of making that easy for all of us. Um, but it has to be easy. It has to be something that doesn't bog down our sites. I mean, there's so much still that has to change and shift to just make that experience a, a, a legitimate experience that people will really be willing to adopt as a, as a brand. Um, but the other thing worth considering is Google is trying to make it so that they can their AI can read your visuals so that their AI can identify if you have quality visual content on your site, if you're utilizing the, simil- the same illustration style throughout and things like that. Hmm. And so, if you're dynamically changing those thumbnails, one question is going to be: What's going to come first—the the Google algorithm shift or the dynamic change of thumbnails? There's going to be something. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and if it's loaded on your site, that's double whammy for you, your SEO. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so, what about YouTube thumbnails? Any any um, any advice on those for gaining attention? Have Have you worked on those at all? Like, because uh, that's another thing that I know YouTube thumbnails are hugely important. For the successive channels, and those seem to be like you have the uh, the PNG cutout of the person's face put on a background. I, I seem to see those over and over. But tell me what your experience is with those.
0: I I've seen thumbnails work in a couple of different ways on on YouTube. I mean, the fact is is it does de- determine whether you want to hit play or not on what's presented to you. So when we're doing a motion graphic, for instance, we will um, sometimes custom design the thumbnail so that the thumbnail itself tells you what that motion graphic is about, more encourages you to hit play, or maybe it gives you the five takeaways about what you're about to see. Um, sometimes if we're putting out something that's going to be maybe a deep dive into a product, the thumbnail is a visual of that product. So having a thumbnail to encourage um, click-throughs and plays is really important. We've A-B tested thumbnails, um, not just on YouTube or and Vimeo, but we've also A.B. tested them on somebody's homepage as a hero image. So the thumbnails do make a difference. And we've definitely found that letting somebody know what they're about to watch with a thumbnail makes a big difference. Now that said, I said it goes two ways. I've also seen thumbnails that are completely, have completely nothing to do at all with the content, but people use those thumbnails because people press play. Oftentimes, those thumbnails are pretty risque. <laughs> so, typically, like I, I see, for instance, YouTube influencers who um, might be a husband and wife team and they, they do all these vlogs and people watch the vlogs. All of a sudden, all the video thumbnails for all of their vlogs are pictures of the wife in scantily clad outfits. And that's mm-hmm. what gets people to subscribe and press play even though n- none of that actually exists in the content of the videos. You
1: don't know me. You don't know me. Right? <laughs> I can't help it. It's a glandular problem. <laughs> so, uh so look, I I, I we're, we're 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 coming up to the uh towards the end of the show. Uh I want to find out we had, I see your book behind you. Uh for those of you if you're listening to the podcast, you obviously cannot see that but uh if you uh want to see us record live we usually do this on wednesday night uh and uh please uh follow us on the uh, LinkedIn page and you can see whenever we do a live thing or on the YouTube page,
2: but you gotta, you gotta stay, you gotta stay
1: still through the, the one
2: camera angle though. <laughs> I,
1: I, I know. Well, it's a, this is a listening experience. We, we do visual jokes. They're rare, but it happens. Uh, but, but I want to find out a, a bit about the book. So can you uh, uh, kind of go over the book? Uh, and I, I, I'm assuming it has some really cool uh, graphical images in it. Yes,
0: definitely. Um, so the book is called killer visual strategies the exact same name as my company. Um, And the book is really meant to be for actually any audience, but I wrote it to empower marketers primarily, although I'm finding that designers are getting equal value out of it. Um, It is a book broken into three parts. Part one talks all about the science behind visual communication, the psychology behind visual communication, and all of the kind of environmental factors that have driven us to be so visually fluent as a culture today. Part two of the book is super hands-on. It's eight rules of visual communication that any marketer can make sure that all of their content adheres to, whether they're doing it themselves or hiring a freelancer or an agency. It tells you exactly how to set those expectations, and it's filled with exercises to help you really make sure that you're, you're employing what you learn. Um, it's also written in a way where you don't have to read it end to end. You can just read the opening section of every rule and take a lot away from that. Or you can just read the key takeaway boxes and take a lot away from that. And then part three of the book dives heavily into the process, the process you need to follow to create great visual content, to ensure it's going to succeed online in your marketing campaigns, um, as well as, how to hire, who to hire, what type of team to build, what you should be paying them, all of those things. So it's really meant to be kind of this full force book for any marketer out there that wants to master visual content marketing. Nice. Um, and again, it's called, yeah, it's called Killer Visual Strategies. It's available on Amazon, um, which is where I recommend getting it from because my publisher. Can continue to put a nice discount on the book on Amazon. It's a little pricier everywhere else.
2: Is it the Kindle version that you get the discount on, or uh, both versions?
0: Both versions. And honestly, I actually suggest the print version over the Kindle version. The Kindle version is great, but it is a very visually rich book. Yeah. And so be, to to be able to have that, you know, in print in your hand to flip through. I've had so many people say they get more value out of it. I've had a lot of people buy the ebook and then go buy the print book because of just the value of all of those visuals. And we practice what we preach. It's, It is a highly, highly visual book.
2: Nice. Yeah. And for me, like I have to, if I'm reading a book, like I actually these days, like write in the book and take notes and things like that. Like that helps me a lot. Now it's not good for the resale of the book, but it is good from a learning standpoint for me. So
0: (laughs) I do
1: the exact same thing. So, uh, I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely going to uh, get this book. I I, I commandeered my wife's uh, e-reader, uh, so I've been doing a lot of reading on uh, on on tablets. But I do miss the book, and this sounds like a, a great book to get. So I'm definitely going to get it. And it sounds like it would also give me a, a way to if I'm going to hire that expert to do an infographic or some sort of visual thing. It, it sounds like it's a good way for me to kind of storyboard and yeah. conceptualize what I want, or like a roadmap, a roadmap, yeah,
0: exactly. exactly.
1: cool. well, i am uh, I am definitely going to get that because it sounds uh, fabulous, and it can it can be right here on my coffee table and I
2: have like a million more questions for you, but uh, we we are out of time, I think. So uh, I know <laughs>
1: Andros has
2: his important question to ask you, though.
1: yes. And that important question is at the end of every show, we always ask our guests. Uh what are you most geeky about right at this particular moment?
2: It doesn't have to be work related. So like we, we we talk about like Netflix movies, we'll talk yeah you know, any, anything it could be work related or we, if you do work related we kind of want both though.
1: Yeah. Hobbies uh binge watching comic books.
0: Oh man, I binge watch way too much especially in the time of COVID. Um I I constantly binge watch. Um but I will say it's not a healthy hobby, but I I have definitely been consuming more politics than anybody ever should yeah. over the past six months. And today was actually the first day when I said, "You know what? I'm not going to listen to the NPR politics podcast while I'm getting ready for work today." I, I decided to just let that one rest for the day. But I do geek out a ton about about politics, and I, I think it's because I've always been somebody who, you know, I come from the Midwest, I live in Seattle, so I have a, a pretty healthy mix of Republicans and Democrats on on um, in, in my kind of group of people that I, I love and care dearly about. And so I've been able to kind of teeter a bit of a moderate line, um, although I definitely lean left. Um, and at least by digging into politics, I've been able to bridge some gaps with a lot of people who I really love and care about. So I geek out about it (laughs) like crazy so that I can have intelligent conversations that, that hopefully bring people together instead of divide them. Have
1: you ever thought about running?
0: I, I, um, I have spent some time in my past life as a political activist and that was enough politics for me from a professional (laughs) standpoint. I, um, I used to uh, run a a small nonprofit. um, And so, yeah, I've experienced it. I'm perfectly happy not doing that. But what I do love, honestly, is creating great, and this is so nerdy, creating great visual content for politics because there's so much misinformation out there that if we can just take these complex ideas that have people honestly debating and fighting left and right and find a way to bring people together with clear visuals. In my opinion, that's one of the most powerful powerful things out there. It's also a great way to stop the spread of misinformation.
1: Hey, have you been doing that uh, recently?
0: Yeah, definitely. Are,
1: are you Are you posting this stuff on
0: Reddit at all? Um, not at the moment. We actually, I right before this, uh, right before this podcast recording um, started. We just finished up a visual for the NAACP that's breaking down all of the key battleground areas and all of the mail that is still sitting at the USPS that was not delivered to those battleground areas.
2: You've got some interesting clients. You have the United Nations on there, too, on the on the bio. I remember that. <laughs> um, I, I just want to say, like, I've been, you know, very geeky about politics recently, and I've gotten more into it over the last uh, probably five, six years. Like, you know, to the point I now know, like, all the senators and house <laughs> all the like, I didn't I don't think I ever knew the names as well before, even though I followed it. Right. But it's getting to the point where, like, now I, like, know everybody and I know their faces. And. <laughs> Um, but the, uh, to a level that I, I agree, like it, it's a little bit unhealthy. So I've had to like put like timers on my, uh, on my browser that will at least warn me that I've been consuming it too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and then like, but last night I was up till 4am watching the uh, election results trickle in and there's really no value to that, but it was just like, you know, I just got hooked and I yep. stayed up and, uh, yep. that's, uh, so that's what, I guess that was what was keeping me geeky was the, uh, was the U S election, which. It looks like Biden is going to eke out a victory. I don't know what the aftermath of that will look like. So I don't want to, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too far, but, uh, at this moment, at least the last time I looked at the stats, it looked like Biden was going to eke out a very small victory. Well,
1: it's uh, we 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 are. I'm sure by the time we post this podcast, it will all. Oh, uh, <laughs> by time know the time we it, to it. Yeah. But uh, but I'm 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 with you. I've got I, I I had an election hangover this morning. Yeah, where it was like because uh, I I I moved to the Netherlands four years ago when exactly four years ago, I made my decision to move to the Netherlands. In fact, today's the anniversary of that. Uh, and I, I, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's bizarro because I have people, uh, here in the Netherlands, it seems like most people know more about American politics than most Americans do. (laughs) Right. And so they, they kind of come up to me and they give me this long stare and they're like, Why? And I'm like, man, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. But that's why I'm here, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I get a pass, but... I uh, will say that it's sometimes weird because like
2: I know like so many names in politics. I know so many names in marketing. And then having conversations with people that just don't know, like I, I take it for granted that like, oh, you know this person. I'll just like mention like name drop a couple like politicians or senators and they're like, no idea what I'm talking about. So it, it is like uh, people are, I tend to over think that people know more about politics than they do.
1: <laughs> I don't know, but it, it usually is the opposite. Well, as, as George Carlin says, think of the dumbest person you've ever met, the absolute dumbest person you've ever met. And then just remember that half of the population is dumber than that. <laughs> so, um, Justin, what are you, what are you geeky about right now, my man?
2: Well, I mean, uh, other than politics, I, I did watch the new Borat movie and, uh, it, it was, I, I was, I enjoyed it. Um, it, it like the Borak character has like, doesn't hold up as well as it did in like 2006, I think. But the, some of the scenes were still really funny and there, you know, there, there are some shocking ones in there, particularly one of them where uh, there's a dance scene. Let's all I'll just say it's a dance scene, but it was, uh, it was pretty graphic.
1: <laughs> I, uh, I, I wanted my wife to see that with me and she's just like, absolutely not. I'm like, can we give it at least the 10 minute rule? She's like, absolutely not. So, um, I have to I have to still watch that. Uh,
2: but I, I do enjoy Sasha Barncone for the most part. So. Oh, the guy's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did yeah. see
1: uh, Chicago 7 on Netflix and he's that guy's amazing. He's an amazing actor. He's an amazing comedian. He's an amazing writer. He's uh, and an eloquent speaker. The speech he did uh, about social media and Facebook was unreal. I mean, he's the the man is is definitely made my list of top three people I would love to have uh, dinner with, uh, at some point, but, uh, and, and he, he could show up as L.E.G. or Borat. I don't care. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I have a, a, a kind of an interesting thing. One so if you are, if you have audible and you have the subscription where you get the mm-hmm. free, uh, books, uh, some of my dad's books are on audible in the free section. My dad was uh, a science fiction writer and he uh, he wrote this book that I haven't read yet, and it's called Venus Plus X. Uh, it's uh, So if you have the Audible subscription, it's free, or you can just buy it on Amazon. Very interesting uh, book. It, it On some level, it's a little dated, but it's about a guy who wakes up and he's in some strange futuristic city with these humans that are both male and female, and they are this new evolution of human being that has basically uh, uh, figured out all the problems that humans were suffering and they solved them. And part of that was having a genderless society where, both, uh, where, where everyone has male and female anatomy. Uh, and uh, their, their, their worship, uh, their god that they worship is the, the child the uh so as you worship the child, the child is worshiping you as a parent and so by having this symbiotic relationship, it helps to uh, uh, equalize where people are and the best uh, the, the the best bit about the society is uh they have a uh, a technology that if you're having an argument, you can show them a mirror of what you look like to everybody else now, you can't use that on yourself. Someone has to sh- give it to you, and they have to ask for consent. So they have to say, may I show you what you look like right now? So they can't just <laughs> spring it on you. Uh, and, and in doing that, everybody is very conscious about how they approach people because they don't want to – they realize that they could very easily look like a big idiot. Uh, they don't just all say, no, I don't want to know? Uh, they could, I guess, uh, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of my take on listening to the show. Uh, I don't because ignorance is bliss. Yeah. I I, I don't want to hear what a big idiot I am. (laughs) (laughs) I, I will add that the
2: marketing geeks, uh, as of, I think a week ago, uh, was added to audible's catalog of podcasts. So we are on audible. Now you can listen to the marketing geeks on audible. We are on Amazon music, audible, Pandora, uh, Google podcasts, Apple podcast, like everything, everything pretty much.
1: And Amy, so. where can people find you if they want to know more about you? Are you doing, you said you do talks, you do different things. Where can we find out more about you? Yep.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on um, LinkedIn. So on Twitter, it's at Amy Balliett. Um, for those of you listening, Balliet is spelled B like in boy, A-L-L-I-E-T-T. Very mm-hmm. weird spelling. So people usually don't know it.
2: And A-M-Y, just in case they try to put an I in there or something. True.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Traditional Amy spelling. Um, and then you can find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is where I post most stuff. I actually, um, you know, talking about Netflix plus politics. I watched the documentary, the social dilemma Mm. about three months ago, Mm. haven't been on Facebook since. So you're not going to really find me on Facebook, but Twitter and LinkedIn.
2: We've talked we've talked uh, quite a bit about it. We haven't done a whole episode on that, on that documentary, but we we've, we've talked about it. At nauseum i'd say a little bit yeah but it, that's a, that's an interesting yeah. one i mean the the movie itself is a little cheesy in, in some respects because mm-hmm. it's just like the, the cut scenes and some of the some of those things but like the content is pretty shocking and but just to just to take the the thesis of that movie which is basically that social media is contributing to the polarization of the country and look at the results like 2010 to 2020 and like what's happened and it's like oh Wow! Yep. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. Exactly. if this is true, like this is like if we go another ten years, it really could be like doomsday. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy how how much that has
1: shifted. Mm-hmm. I wonder about that. Like a uh, hundred and fifty years from now, are people going to look back and be like, "Oh my God, what they did with social media back then"? It's it, the way we talk about like the way we treat <laughs> yeah. mental illness in the dark ages. You know, it's like. Uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's bananas. And if you, here's a, just a, before we close the show, there's a funny anecdote. Uh, I talk a lot of shit about Facebook on the show <laughs> and we started doing live streams on Facebook of the show. And, uh, at some point I went to log in and it said, oh, sorry, you need to verify your identity. So, uh, I never changed my old email address. And so it it was sending me like verification notifications to an email address I don't have anymore. So I'm, uh, I'm essentially locked out of uh, Facebook. And I'm okay with that, except <laughs> for the fact that uh, a client of mine had their Facebook page through my account. Uh-huh. And uh, I have to get back in there now. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed out about that. It's like (laughs) you
2: could do it. I'm sure. But yeah, yeah, it's going to be a hassle.
1: (laughs) Oh, but uh, people kill your Facebook page. It's Mark Zuckerberg is an evil alien sent from the planet. Sirius to destroy us. Please, (laughs) please destroy your Facebook page. And with that, everybody, I want to thank uh, our guest, Amy. (laughs) That is uh, awesome. Uh, standing next to me is our show producer and uh, AKA my lovely wife, Iris. Uh, Iris, uh Honey. hey, what? Uh, tell me what. What are you? Uh, what are you? Uh, What's new? Geeky about right at the moment. What I'm geeky about? Well,
3: uh, mm-hmm. it's been a while since I was on the show because I uh, actually have been f- super busy. At this moment, my uh, my passion is making little promo movies and websites. Uh, which is uh, which I like uh, for the creative uh, process. So what I do is I take business owners. We have strategy sessions. They're going through a transformation. They had a business uh, going, but some things changed, and the way the look and feel and the branding is doesn't fit what they do anymore. So we change that around. And part of that is making a movie or uh, building a website. So yeah, that's my passion at the moment: being creative and nice. producing stuff.
2: It's kind of in line with our guest today too. Oh
3: that's really? Cool. Oh, yeah. I should I should listen to our guest.
2: <laughs> yeah, you got to listen to the guest here too because it's, <laughs> well, it's kind of in line with.
3: Yeah, that. actually, yeah. we we have to listen to all the episodes. And mm-hmm. make a summary because all the guests have great tips and, yeah. you know, I'm, great you business. You know what? If
1: I listen to some of our guests, uh, I, I might even make more money. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> have more, I'd have more responsibility.
3: Well, it's like the shoemaker or the painter, you know, it's always better. It's the client's house or the shoes of yeah. the clients That's are what always I,
1: better. That's what I always say. Ask a, a shoemaker's wife where her shoes are. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
3: So- exactly yeah but we're having fun we're having an amazing time I here love it.
2: we're in our little uh, COVID. What, what are you watching on uh on netflix or uh, or hulu what does andros have you watching over there
3: oh uh we're watching netflix and we're watching uh, that new show with the girl that's a chess player queen's gambit queen's gambit yeah
2: queen's gambit yeah, okay so, i haven't seen it yet oh, i'll check that one out yeah, okay sta- it's good
3: yeah it starts very good um and uh i just had a two hour rest because i had a i gave training today a leadership training and it was very intense and cool but after that i'm really exhausted so i watched two hours to the little woman movie and it was so sweet is it sweet oh
1: yeah. i'm so glad you got to see that without <laughs> <Yeah>. me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it
3: was perfect yeah and just what are you geeky about at the moment
2: well um i did watch uh, I, mean, I already i've already kind of given my geeky on the Show. Oh,
1: okay. But I did
2: watch this documentary on the game. I think it's Go, which is like a big game in, in Japan. I think it was or, or, or Asia. Um, it's this like uh, board game thing, and I watched this documentary where the, this guy was playing against artificial intelligence, and it was uh, it was quite interesting. It was uh, a battle of the wits, but ultimately AI
3: won. Okay. So it's that. And have you heard about the playbook? The playbook. The show on Netflix. Netflix. That's a show about. Uh, a- Coaches that tell about their biggest success, hmm. like baseball coach, football coach, super, uh, soccer coach, etc. That's good. Today, I, yeah, I heard about it today. It should be very good.
2: okay. I'll check that um, one out. That sounds interesting.
3: Yeah, cool. Okay, so back to
1: Anders. Yes.
2: All right. <laughs> Thank you, Iris.
1: Iris, surgeon, everybody. There she is, my wife. There she was. <laughs> and uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are the marketing geeks, and yes. we are in out <laughs> in,
3: quarantine. in quarantine
1: stay classy <laughs> oh fantastic marketing geeks come on bring your friends we'll learn marketing from distant lands Andre, Sturgeon, and just look back the fun will never end it's marketing geeks marketing geeks